When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm all right. I'm gladdened to hear that you've been following my advice, which you should probably do in all things. Well, I do in all things. Let's remind the listeners. Last week, if you remember, I can't remember why we were talking about this now. Summer reads, I think, weren't we? Summer read, yes. Sorry, yeah. that shows you how good my memory is. But we were mentioning Helen DeWitt, and Alex was talking about Helen DeWitt's short story, really, a sort of long short story, I guess, short novella, The English Understand Wool. And I think it was both Toby and I said we hadn't read it, and she said, you must stop whatever you're doing as soon as we finish talking and go and read it. So I'm very obedient. So I did do that. That afternoon. It is 61 pages, isn't it? Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, I, I know that, you know, you probably had many things that you should have been doing, but it's not like asking you to take time out to read The Magic Mountain. No, exactly. Which I'm sure you've done, I should say. I haven't, actually. If we're going to play humiliation, I haven't. But I did <laughs> read Helen DeWitt and it was very good and very sharp and funny. And it's like a sort of fable, isn't it, almost? Well, I was also really delighted because I imagined you reading it in your legendarily brilliant French accent. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, well, I, I didn't read it out loud, but it was very funny that she does slip into French a little bit. doesn't Yes, she? exactly. Could you say mauvais temps? Oh, no, because I won't say it nicely. Now, you just said it beautifully. Oh, all right. Okay. But yes, and it's very nice the way she just has that in that. Like That's the worst thing you can be, which is a bit like bad form. I suppose. Yes, and sort of strangely, untra- I mean, obviously it is translatable, but it kind of carries an extra cachet, I guess. Yeah, exactly. In the French. We yeah. should explain what it's about. It's a kind of girl who just is brought up to within, I mean, it's like, I suppose, the old concept of finishing schools, but it starts when she's about three and everything comes to her. She's brought up to be able to do everything in the best possible taste ever. Mm. But... Mm one day wakes up and her incredibly wealthy mother is no longer there. She has skedaddled. What's amazing to me is that in 60 pages, it then turns into a completely different kind of novel. It's a sort of publishing heist story after that. It's brilliant. There's probably lots of morals to it, actually. But one of the morals is definitely look at your contracts before you ever sign anything. Even if you've seen them before you sign Yes. Even if yes. you yes, reread yes. your contracts exactly. actually. Yeah. But that's not the main thrust of the of the story. But I like the fact as well that she is brought up sort of, you know, to do all the proper things that sort of, you know, very what should we say, high end people are supposed to be able to do, sort of play music, appreciate music, dress nicely, be able to order the best wine. But also it turns out that what her especially her mum has been doing the whole time is also being a very good and considerate and generous employer for instance so when she they have staff in the house and she takes they're in Morocco aren't they so she takes mm. off the whole of Ramadan and a week or two afterwards so as not to sort of inconvenience the staff 
Yes, she realizes, doesn't she? Closes the house up for Ramadan, and the first year she does this, she comes back the day after, and then she realizes that was terrible. That was mauvais temps because yeah, they're all very was. tired. Yeah, she hasn't given yeah. them enough recovery time after finishing Ramadan and feasting, and they need more time. So she's tremendously considerate hostess, and that's a rather kind of nice, weirdly egalitarian note in the story. Yes, and that goes all the way through. That actually, I suppose she treats other people very well. If they work hard and they have a, you know, a straightforward sort of relationship, as it were, she treats people very well and helps them to do well. And that comes out in a way later as well. It's very interesting. Do you think we're persuading people to read this? I mean, I don't think it sounds like we've given the whole thing away because it's very short, but I don't think we We haven't. No, I don't think we have. It's full of surprises. I have spent um, the week or so rereading Hernan Diaz's trust because I'm interviewing him shortly and I say that because it's connected I suppose partly because it's about very wealthy people and also because it's a very tricksy narrative it's not short it's it's sort of over 400 pages but it's four books in one all talking to one another and all trying to establish what the truth is it's terribly good Oh, wonderful. Okay, well yes tell us uh, well no you can't tell us do we need to stop everything and, and read that one a bit longer though that one little bit longer but you know when you have time please do it's very good should we get on with the business in hand which strangely does actually connect us to senses of exceptionalism doesn't it and and class scales this week it does yes yes it does actually the idea of being exceptional though in a very different way can I say quickly (laughs) so on this week's show in the week that's seen the excavation of the world's oldest pizza, potentially, Mary Beard on what some Virgilian graffiti might tell us about the lives of pop manufacturers in the ancient world. And Michael Hughes on Malcolm MacArthur and the brutal murders he committed in 1980s Ireland. But first, now it doesn't happen that often, but last week, archaeology, and particularly classics, made the headlines. You may have seen a report about an exciting archaeological find, an olive oil jar discovered in Spain. Not that exciting in itself, perhaps, but this one had a lovely graffito. And not just so-and-so made this, but two lines of Virgil, which is most unusual. So to find out why this is extraordinary and what it might mean, who better to turn to than our own Mary Beard, Classics Editor of the TLS. She's written about it for us on her blog on the TLS, and we've got her here in person to shed light on it all. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And I think I ought to say to start with, don't get your hopes up too much because it's only a fragment of a pot. It's not even a complete pot, but happily... Oh, that's true. Yes, I oversold it. It's not a whole jar, is it? It's a bit uh, of a jar. I'm afraid, Lisa, you oversold it. But uh, <laughs> sorry. But it is but, a good bit of a jar. But it's probably the best bit of this jar that we could have found because it was excavated actually several years ago, but it's only just now been properly published and what has got people talking about it is that it has got two lines written on it and I think there was obviously more if we got a bigger fragment of the pot I think it's more was once there from the beginning of Virgil's agricultural poem the Georgics and classicists love finding bits of Latin poetry in odd places so this got them all going. Mm. In a way, it's an amazingly appropriate thing to find if it's from the Georgics <laughs> on an olive oil jar. I didn't realise that it looks like that. there's more of it. We have just got a little fragment of the text. Yeah, I was looking at the pictures and I think that I don't imagine that there was much more, but I think there was a bit more. And for me, what's interesting about this particular quote is that most graffiti, and there's loads of most graffiti that we find quoting Virgil, and we've got other bits on brick and things like that. You know, he, Virgil does tend to get everywhere in the ancient world. But most of the quotes are very, very restricted. They're mostly from the Aeneid, not from the Georgics or the Eclogues. And actually, they're mostly either the first line of the first book of the Aeneid or they're the first line of the second book of the Aeneid, Arma Wirumque Cano, or Contiguere Omnes. And what's always been the puzzle about these for people is whether this shows a really kind of embeddedness of Virgil, and particularly the Aeneid, in Roman popular culture, 
or whether this is no more than, you know, to be or not to be strolled yeah. up on the local bus shelter, which would give you no indication of whether the scrawler had actually ever read or seen Hamlet. And one of the things we want to know about Virgil, really, I think, is how far knowledge of the poems went in the ancient world beyond the upper crust of the male elite. Now, why this one's interesting is that it's a not particularly exciting couple of lines from the poem that's much less well known, which is his agricultural poem, The Georgics. And it's part of, actually, an address to the god Ceres and Bacchus saying that it was under their auspices that the earth exchanged the acorn for the rich ear of wheat and mixed the waters of the river Achelous with the grapes that had been discovered. In a way, it's a part of the celebration of the beginning of agriculture in the world when you know, mm. people give up just eating acorns from the trees and they cultivate wheat and they discover wine. Now, you might say, this is okay, this isn't exactly a wine amphora, but it is sort of agricultural produce. So there's something appropriate here that you're you're scrawling on this pot, something about production, but it's still not the kind of best known. And mm. you know what's interesting is that this was clearly, as you can see from the pictures, and I put a picture in the blog if anybody wants to look at it, you can see that it's not just been scratched on to the pot it's been written when the pot was still wet so that it must have been done not by some bored schoolboy using a bit of old pot you know when it's well and sort of practices handwriting type that's thing. right and, yeah. and quite a lot of these do turn out to be schoolboys practicing their handwriting that's what i love tell us about the ones in pompeii <laughs> yeah. it's such yeah. a good detail <laughs> the ones in pompeii are very interesting because you can look at those and you can say, my, there's over 36 quotes from Virgil in Pompeii. And then you look again and you think, ah, oh, and actually 26 from first line of one of the Aeneid or book two right, of Aeneid. Yeah, but yeah. even more surprising is that if you go and literally look where these were discovered, they're not actually at the local bus shelter or the ancient equivalent of it. The biggest proportion of them comes from the inside of rich houses. So they're scrawled on the walls of posh houses, but also they're scrawled on the walls quite low down, right? So the likely writers are posh schoolboys who've been learning Virgil at school in Pompeii. And that gives you a slightly different spin on it. Yeah, then it's almost like they're not writing it necessarily because they're moved by the beauty of the line, but they've got to practice or they want to show off or they've something to, like that. Yeah, they've got to practice. They want to show off or, you know, they're being a bit naughty. And actually, if you want to mm. write on your mum and dad's wall, it's better to write a bit of Virgil. You know, you probably get less told <laughs> off for it. I the, think. Better Virgil than Catullus because you really get told <laughs> off for that. Yeah, no sex in this. So what's interesting about this fragment of an olive oil jar which must have been written on in the factory because it was written on when it was still drying out, is that this comes from a quite different social and cultural milieu. And you have to try to explain why... I mean, who do you think, you know, in the olive oil jar manufactory, who do you think was writing this? It's quite neat handwriting. I mean, most mm. Roman handwriting is truly appalling. And even I can read this and... You know, that's saying something. And, you know, OK, there are what we call a few spelling mistakes in it. But actually, Latin spelling was much more varied anyway than the kind of the, the real orthodox versions that we have. So mm. somebody around when the pot is being made has had fun scrawling Virgil. It'd be nice to think it was you know, one of the potters who was dead keen on the great bard. It could, of course, be the rather upmarket owner of the pottery who was also kind of wasting his time when he saw some pots being out to dry and, and decided he would mark them with his own bit of Virgil. And we just don't know that. But those are the kind of arguments that 
this pot fits into and why people will go on talking about it because it's there is the possibility that we're really here seeing a wide social spread of, mm. of Mary social. do you think there's any way that it could have been a sort of deliberate ornamentation so you were selling a jar that had something beautiful yeah. written on it so it was sold as a decorative item I wonder I mean I don't think that's right but one thing that people have started to wonder about is whether this was a kind of upmarket advert, mm. you know, and that what you're getting is you're getting an olive oil jar with a little bit of extra cachet because it's got this appropriate quote from Virgil on it, or sort of appropriate. Now, the problem about that is that people who know exactly how these pots were formed and where the top was and where the bottom was, even when they've only got a fragment, say so that you'd never have been able to see it on the mm. pot really it's kind of it would ah. be hidden at the bottom so the otherwise rather nice idea which is that it was you know adding a bit of a bit of poshness to a humble object I think doesn't hack it it really might have just been somebody's sort of doodling in a way yes what goes against that is that the handwriting is pretty neat and most of these most of the doodles that you find are the kind of doodles that you have to now have spent, you know, almost a lifetime working out how to decipher. This is one that, you know, that people like me, who know, they're Latin quite well, but not handwriting, can decipher. Can I just say you're underselling yourself there, but who know Latin quite well? <laughs> Lizzie, just... there's plenty of people in the world who know Latin better than I do. I well, I never heard of them. But anyway, I like the idea that, as you said, Mary, that it's a potter who's making it, who happens to love his or her yeah. Virgil, yeah. probably his, I suppose. And Virgil himself, he was a country boy, wasn't he? He wasn't <laughs> born a Roman aristocrat. It's no. very apt. No, he was born in Mantua and... Uh, his first collection of poems is the pastoral poems, the eclogues. And then he has the four books of the Georgics, which are kind of a quasi-didactic poem. It's a kind of set of lessons about farming and agriculture, but very much with an undercurrent that if you understand the very nature of farming, it helps you think about the nature of the world and how society is organised and how agriculture can be seen as a, as a metaphor for culture. Uh, you know, it's all appropriate. And in some ways, there's nothing hugely surprising. But I think what's quite nice about this compared with, you know, some of the ways that ancient discoveries get a huge razzmatazz in the in newspapers and then kind of just fade away, is that it's a nice example where you can see what the issues are. And you can see why it's, it is quite important. And well, just like Alex say we can all have a bit of a go here say well maybe it was an advert it's a nice kind of discussion piece where nobody actually knows the answer Mary um, I think I might be influenced by that wonderful conversation we had on here a while ago about souvenirs (laughs) and and these sort of the sort of equivalent of the kiss me quick hats that you find scattered throughout the Roman Empire and beyond Yes, yes. Rome has a has a nice line in putting kind of interesting, meaningful, but sometimes also very trivial things onto pots. And we did have a good discussion about something that I'd really not known very much about until I reviewed the book that was talking about them. The idea that you could go to Hadrian's Wall and buy a very nice vessel that had famous sites of Hadrian's Wall decorated around the outside. So, you know, one's got to be aware that that's a bit of a tradition. And in many ways, that is what I would like this to be. I think I'd be with you saying that there's more here than just somebody doodling. But the fact that if that's the case, if it is a kind of advert, they put it in a damn stupid place on the pot. (laughs) Because no one could see it. I like also your idea, because saying it's like writing, if you write the first line, oh, my room quick enough, that's like writing... um to be or not to be you don't have to know the rest of it because that's in the culture but I like the idea that he is like Shakespeare because isn't this like a couple of hundred years later is that when it dates from the only dating evidence we've got really is the is what would have been the shape of the of the container and also the way the handwriting is done because in you know in ancient Rome just like in modern Britain handwriting changes over the centuries you know we can all recognize you know granny's handwriting as being old-fashioned 
And this mm. is probably second, third century CE. So it's 200 years, but Virgil dies in 19 BCE. So it's, it's a good 200 years probably after Virgil died. And he is an absolute, what's, what's extraordinary about Virgil, he's a completely instant classic. He's a totally radical poet. He now seems to us to be kind of absolutely a kind of taken for granted poet. But he's the rap artist of the late first century BCE. You know, and just that line that we have, armor wirumque cano, we think, oh, yeah, you know, everybody says that, don't they? Arms of the man I sing, you know. What he's saying is absolutely kind of, you know, in your face. He's saying, do you know what I'm going to do in my poem? I'm going to do exactly what Homer did in the Iliad, that's the arms, the battles, and the Odyssey, uh, wirumque, but mm. I'm going to do it in the same poem. I am going to <laughs> outbid Homer. Right? You know, just look what a Latin poet can do now. You know, he can cap the classics of ancient Greece. So it's mm. very pushy, very ballsy. Could we say? Yeah, it's ballsy. It's ballsy. <laughs> but you know, we think of Virgil as now. You know, he's he's. You think of him as very proper. We think of him as terribly proper. You know, but it's really kind of in your face ballsy stuff, and yet. It also kind of gets into Roman culture instantly. And, you know, it's one work of literature, I think, that's never fallen out of Western culture. And classicists like to say whether it's exactly true or not, or, and they certainly can't prove it, but I'm sure it is basically right, which is that, uh, you know, Virgil died in 19 BCE. He hadn't quite finished the Aeneid, actually. But there hasn't been a day since the day he died, when someone somewhere in Europe has not been reading the Aeneid. It's mm. apart from the Bible, and the Bible's got a, the New Testament at least has got a shorter history, not the Jewish Bible, but it's a work of literature which has never been off the agenda. How was it disseminated, Mary, to become so popular in ancient Rome, sort of beyond uh, the schoolroom? We imagine recitals, you know, mm. we're, we're in a culture in which you know, maybe 20% of men were literate. It's a big guess. So for it to become popular, we have to imagine uh, there's dissemination of it, which is not simply written dissemination. Though I think the schoolroom is a big part of that, I think. The other kind of hints that you get in Pompeii is that you get little parodies of it. You get drawings that appear to be illustrating it. So it looks as if there is, or a lot of people would like to say, there is a wide, relatively popular dissemination, but then that's, you know, the problem that this pot raises is quite how far down it goes. Mm. And then, you know, does your poor beggar in the street have a clue about Virgil? And that's always, that's a trickier one. But it's, mm -hmm. you know, and then ever after you know okay a lot of the dissemination in the in the modern period has started at least with the schoolroom and you know kids having to learning the Aeneid at school but it's never gone away it's, and you know I, I really like the idea of it never going away and I like the idea of you know, it enables you in a way to kind of track your own relations with generations of previous readers you know we read the Aeneid differently from Dryden or whoever and you know that's quite a there's an exciting thread that you can trace back of, mm. you know right back to things like this pot actually mm. so yeah we read the Aeneid differently but we're still reading it and mm. we're still yeah. talking about it yeah thank you so much for telling us about it I feel like we've if someone's always reading him we're, we're doing our bit by talking about him today we are. We and are. especially you Mary for telling us telling us about <laughs> what's going on and well, about... I've got one final question uh, if I, oh, where no, I... where is it now what will happen <laughs> to it I, do you know I thought about that and I haven't got the foggiest clue though I am I believe it's still in Spain and I assume mm. it was finally a Cordoba and I assume it will go on show in a museum there if anybody wants to really read about it they should go to the Journal of Roman Archaeology which has published it, but the article, quite correctly, is in Spanish. So if you really want to delve in and you've got reasonable Spanish, um, the Journal of Roman Archaeology, of which, declare an interest, I'm on the editorial advisory board, but the Journal of Roman Archaeology is the place to go. 
was okay. fascinating. Thank you so much, Mary. That's so a pleasure. <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for enlightening us. And we'll all go off and maybe read just a read a little bit of the Aeneid today. Oh, I might start scrawling on some pots in the hope that in <laughs> many, many years to come. <laughs> oh, my wirumque, Cano. That's what you should put on it, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Bye-bye, <laughs> ladies. to come on the show, Michael Hughes on the sensational double murder that nearly brought down the Irish government. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. In 1982, Ireland was shocked to its core when a young nurse was brutally murdered in Dublin's Phoenix Park in broad daylight. Subsequently, a farmer was also killed. When the police tracked down the culprit, there was another immense shock. Malcolm MacArthur had been hiding out in an apartment belonging to none other than the Irish Attorney General, Patrick Connolly. The scandal was all-consuming and nearly brought down the government, with the then Taoiseach, Charles Hockey, coining an acronym that persists to this day, GUBU. Grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. Mark McConnell's new book, A Thread of Violence, narrates these events from a new perspective. He persuaded Malcolm MacArthur to speak to him. What did he learn? The novelist Michael Hughes has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Michael, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Alex. I'm very well indeed. Well, this is a case so well known to everyone in Ireland, isn't it? I wonder if you can give us the background for those not as familiar with it. Yes, well, you summed it up very nicely there. I think 
what maybe remains to add is that Dublin in the early 80s was maybe a very different city than it became in subsequent years. O'Connell makes the point in his book that this was before the huge influx of heroin into Dublin, which caused an increase in violent crime, gangland murders and so on, which persists to this day in Dublin and in other parts of Ireland. At that point, notwithstanding the conflict north of the border, violent crime of that sort, brutal, random murder of a stranger was extremely rare, extremely unusual, and it was a very, very uh, shocking case. The other point of fascination with this case that hasn't gone away was the murderer himself, Malcolm MacArthur, this character who was, I suppose, the opposite of what you might consider a stereotypical murderer, criminal, whatever that might mean. And indeed, that's the heart of the fascination of the case. And that's, I think, the heart of what Mark O'Connell tries to get at in this book. Why and how can a man like this commit a crime like that? And of course, even in putting the question in that way, there are all sorts of assumptions and questions that all float to the surface in this book. But that's really what's at the heart of it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the nature of the class system in Ireland is very different to the class system in the UK. But nonetheless, he was, is sort of landed gentry, well-to-do, very, very well-educated. And I suppose, to use an Irish phrase, he had notions, didn't he? Yes, he was certainly saw himself as, I suppose, the intellectual superior of many of the people he would have um, found around him in Ireland. He saw himself as exceptionally bright. You're right to say he was landed gentry, although he was an odd, he he wasn't quite the man we sort of think we remember he was. He was Catholic landed gentry. He wasn't part of the Protestant ascendancy of the sort of ruling class in political terms, even if he very much was in economic terms. He also, although he'd been intended for B-deals for school, the the Grand Public School in England, he uh, ended up going to the local Christian Brothers School when the family hit financial difficulties. And his childhood, he remembered being once described as feral. He was more or less left to run wild after the age of sort of six or seven around the family estates. But you're absolutely right that he came to be seen as a symbol of establishment high-handedness. I think part of the frenzy that surrounded uh, the discovery of the suspect, as it was at the time, and after his conviction, the murderer, was around. The other thing I would say, Alex, is that in, in, in the early 80s, now... With a caveat, I suppose, that I always lived north of the border, but I think it's safe to make the assumption that in the early 80s, the colonial mindset, if you like, the the memory, rather, of the colonial reality of Ireland's past was almost within touching distance, almost within living memory. And he, he, I think he became a sort of symbol of that, the sort of brutal violence against ordinary people who got in the way of some high-handed project. I think that was part of the real fury people felt when he emerged as the the figure behind these killings. So he was a kind of symbol in a way. Yeah, I think he became a kind of symbol. And I think the fact, as you say, that he was arrested hiding out in the Attorney General's apartment, who I should make clear had absolutely no idea that he was guilty of any crime. Obviously, there was a manhunt underway for the perpetrator of these murders, but Connolly, the Attorney General, had no had no awareness that MacArthur was the man who was being sought. So he was, in a sense, blameless in that. He was caught up in it and had to resign shortly afterwards. But yes, he became a symbol of a sort of establishment. There was a, a fear, an anxiety, as I can imagine there had to be, that the conspiracy theory sprung up. There was a sense there must be a cover-up. All sorts of, of wild theories, which I won't rehearse now, but you know, it was spun out about what was going on, how he ended up there. It seemed too crazy to be a coincidence. And it was a bizarre sort of coincidence. But in another way, it wasn't because he was a pal of Connolly's from their younger days when they'd hung around in the arty bohemian set in Dublin. And they were sort of part of a, a certain media in Dublin that was not maybe the, the mainstream of the culture at the time. Can I ask about what you said earlier about the kind of fascination with the fact that someone like him did something like that. It's very interesting that you say that he was seen as as a symbol of kind of earlier times in colonialism, because I remember, Alex, when we were talking about it earlier, you had said it's a bit like Lord Lucan over here. And there's a similar sort of thing. There's a sort of idea of how could somebody from that class, you know, or who was well-educated behave like that, which seems a bit mystifying to me. I mean, it's nothing to do with class or education, is it, that kind of thing? But there's a kind of, you know, people clutching their handkerchiefs and saying, oh, but, you know, 
but how could someone like that do something like this? Which you don't get if it's someone from another walk of life necessarily. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's something that O'Connell does interrogate a bit in the book. But it is, there are, of course, he doesn't fit the bill of a savage murderer of someone who would bludgeon a young woman to death to get her car or when she refused to let him hijack her car or who would shoot a farmer in the face with a shotgun who he'd offered to sell him probably so he didn't have to pay. We don't actually know what went on. But a bigger than that, I think a bigger question around that is his behavior before and after the killings. He behaved in a way that was utterly idiotic. You know, he left trail of clues. He tried to disguise himself in a very inept way. He also, which which isn't is sort of forgotten in this, but he went to a friend of his who he was known to and tried to stick him up with the gun he'd got from Dunn, from the murder of Donald Dunn. He then went to this friend's apartment, tried to stick him up for money. And then tried to sort of pass that off as a joke when it, it kind of didn't turn out the guy had any money. But that was what really let the police know his identity and link that botched armed robbery with these other murders. The idea yeah. that he was some sort of criminal mastermind couldn't have been further from the truth. He behaved like a complete idiot. It's that funny idea that because you've read some books and been to the right schools, that that intelligence kind of persists in all walks of your life, whereas we know it doesn't. There's all sorts of intelligence. No, we, and... we know it doesn't. And, and to me, you know, to me, there's a sort of there's a sort of hidden question in this investigation that I think is is really in any kind of true crime investigation. It's not it's not my favorite genre, the sort of pure true crime. This is a much more maybe self-conscious. There's a lot more of O'Connell's own reflections on the ethics of what he's doing in the book. Mm. But in terms of that investigation of how does someone do this, I always feel haunted by the sense of we, we've got to find a root cause. We've got to find the source of that evil. That's what the title of the book refers to, A Thread of Violence. We've got to find some trauma in his early life. You know, we accept unthinkingly the post-Freudian idea that it's trauma in early life that produces these manifests and these this sort of behaviour in later life. Because if we can't find that, if we can't find something to pin it down, who's to say we couldn't do that as well? You've got to find something that defines that person, that shows the heart of their evil or their criminality that makes them separate, that explains it. And the fact that's so elusive in this case is what haunts, I think, O'Connell's investigation. We're into the sort of Patricia Highsmith territory, her view that actually anybody, given the circumstances, could do this. And what, what he was doing was completely hapless. I mean, he was on the run for money reasons, wasn't he? He'd gone to live in Spain. He'd run out of money and he'd come back in order as you point out in the review, to rob a bank. I mean, already itself a kind of pretty stupid idea. And the reason that he murdered Bridie Gargan, the nurse in Phoenix Park, was because he was trying to hijack her car. The reason probably he murdered the farmer was that he was trying to buy a gun. So it wasn't in that sense premeditated in a kind of serial killer type sense. He was just botching everything. Yes, he was botching everything, but after having botched it so appallingly and murdered two innocent people, there was no suggestion he might turn himself in. He still seemed mm. to feel that he could think his way out of this or he could breeze his way out of it. So I think that's what really offends maybe the casual observer is this sense of impunity, the idea that he, of course, he was going to get away with this. There had been a series of bank heists around that time organised by the IRA to get funds. And I think the understanding is now that he felt if he carried out a bank heist, it would be blamed on the IRA and he could disappear back to Spain and that would be that. So, of course, there's a whole political, social context for it as, as we're sort of uncovering. And it's interesting, you're talking about that root cause idea and how it fires the imagination that John Banville drew on the case for his novel, The Book of Evidence. And, I mean, there are incredible stories you know, after MacArthur's release of Banville doing readings in bookshops of other books entirely and MacArthur just turning up at them I mean this very strange character haunting the scenes of his crimes in a way yes to say he's a contradictory and complex figure I think it doesn't even get close to it he has not courted publicity in the obvious sense. He has had offers and he claims lucrative offers to go on the record. He was released about 10 years ago after, after serving 30 years to go on the record and talk about what he did. And he's always refused those. And he lives in a very small way in Dublin in public housing. But he does still seem to enjoy his notoriety in a sense, making remarks about it, turning up, as you say, at literary events, turning up at political talks, turning up at Trinity College, which is where Mark O'Connell first catches sight of him. And he has this extra layer of notoriety among the intellectual uh, set in that he is the model for this Freddie Montgomery character in Banville's 
the Book of Evidence, book of shortlisted novel, and, and that character pops up in a few other of Banville's novels. And he's, he's this presence around the scene in Dublin. And people do occasionally accost him and harangue him in the street. He becomes something of a, of a tabloid fixture. He's good for a cheap you know, paparazzi shot and an outraged headline showing him going about his business. And his own attitude to that is not straightforward. Most intriguingly, I suppose, for Mark O'Connell in, in the book, he alludes to having written his own account of his crimes, which he intends for his son. He has had a young son at the time of the murders to understand it in the future, but refuses to let O'Connell see that if it even exists. There's all sorts of bears going on here. It's very hard to separate any sort of fact from the myth making that's going on around this man in this case. It was very shocking for us, Lucy, to read in your review that he was possibly the only prisoner in Mountjoy Jail to have a TLS subscription. Yes, I'm not sure that's a that's something that we should. Um, no, I'm not publicize. sure. I mean, it, it does. Uh, no disrespect to the TLS, but it does speak of a kind of you know somebody attempting to sort of portray themselves as this grand intellectual. You can imagine the TLS being delivered to his cell and him sort of perusing its pages. It's very odd. I'm so interested mm. to know how Mark O'Connell got the access that he got and how unprecedented it was. I mean, the story's been told and retold many times. There was an amazing podcast series, the Goo Boo podcast, created by Harry McGee of the Irish Times, which I was listening to only, only last year. How did McConnell get sort of further in? Once he gets the idea that he's going to write about this, well, he's already aware, as I say, that MacArthur is around in Dublin and people do encounter him. This is the first section of the book. The first sort of few chapters of O'Connell's book deals with this. And he more or less, it's too extreme to say he stalks him, but he sort of hangs around the places he might expect to find him. This is at the time of the first lockdown, the COVID lockdown in Ireland, which was very, very strict. But people were allowed to take walks. So he, he sort of tunes in to intel of where MacArthur might be found. He goes on walks. He tries to encounter him, tries to contrive to run into him. And to cut a long story short, eventually he does. He approaches him. He flexes his literary credentials. He's the author of two you know, acclaimed works of nonfiction and offers him copies of these and says, I want to write about this. I want to talk to you. Makes very clear that MacArthur will have no oversight of this. He may well write things that MacArthur doesn't like. And he's, he's absolutely going to write his own book. But MacArthur is persuaded by O'Connell's credentials as a serious writer and thinker and comes to see him as something of a peer, an intellectual peer, someone he can have a, a decent back and forth with. O'Connell, it's a funny thing. I was thinking as I was looking over this, one of the things I always do towards the end of, of, of preparing a book for other people's eyes, as I'm writing, I put in lots of little questions and anxieties and marginal notes to myself of things I'm not sure about or worry about. And a bit like after, after builders have been, you know, the last thing you do is sort of sweep all those up and take them out. But O'Connell has sort of left them in or left a version of them in. So there's this sort of running commentary going on about all his worries, his anxieties, his ethical qualms about how he's approaching this guy and what use he's making of him, what effect this might have on the families, whether he's giving too much of a, a megaphone in a sense to this convicted murder. All that stuff is in there. He, he meets him over the course of a year, sometimes in person, sometimes on the phone. As I understand it, sometimes recording the meetings, sometimes taking notes. And there are a few extraordinary nuggets that come out of that. There's a lot of stuff about, especially his early life. He doesn't speak in such detail for a long time about the killings, but eventually does, does get around to that. That's extraordinary to, to, as you say, sort of keep the worries and keep them as a running commentary. Does that make it feel a bit different from a sort of, I don't mean run of the mill, but from other sort of true crime investigations that he is having worries about the ethics of this and he's thinking about it as he goes along and, and, and talking about it. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Obviously, there are serious literary heavyweights who've set themselves to examine true crime cases. Uh, Truman Capote, you know, being this classic example. I don't remember Truman um, Capote being very worried about it, though. Well, there you go. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And in this case, what he has done, I think, is the book is sort of in three layers. There's the sort of present tense story of him tracking down MacArthur, interviewing him, and how that plays out. Then there is the story of what happened, the man's own early life, the crimes, what's happened to him since. But there's this other layer going on of these, these reflections on his own position in relation to this. And that really, to me, was the meat of the book. That's what made it so compelling and so fascinating. And in a sense, you say I reviewed it. It was a very hard book to review because it sort of reviews itself. He's constantly challenging himself. He's constantly anticipating all the objections you might have. But he doesn't always tidy them up and he doesn't always like what he finds. He's often quite hard on himself 
and often points his finger at his own, at himself, as it were, and, and throws accusations at himself. That's that to me is really what what makes the book such a fascinating read. I suppose one of the justifications he might also give us, you know, because I suppose the fear that you would have is that there is a kind of prurience that it is going to have an effect on people whose lives were devastated by the murders. But it also had such an effect on the political landscape of the country, didn't it? I mean, it was an immense political scandal. It was, and yet there really wasn't anything to it, in a sense. There were these conspiracy theories about what had gone on, about what some sort of establishment cover-up. The only thing that really lends weight to that is, is the fact that, that MacArthur pleaded guilty to the first murder and there was no evidence heard in court. There was a suspicion that that had been kind of managed in order to avoid embarrassment to Patrick Connolly and, and the government. In a sense, where the things really went wrong, I think, Hockey himself, whose political instincts were usually very good, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, on the evening of the arrest, when this, as I say, a wanted murderer had been arrested in the Attorney General's apartment, the Attorney General was on his way to, on holiday, was on his way to a holiday in America and said, I, I, want, to, I want to go on. This has nothing to do with me. He happened to have been staying with me, but I have no involvement in this. And he said to Hockey, can I go on holidays? There are different accounts of, of whether that message was somehow garbled between the two men, but Hockey essentially said yes, and Connolly went off on holidays. So as the story broke, the Attorney General then had, had, had gone off to London and then New York for a two-week holiday. And that was really, I think, what, what helped to stoke the fires. And he was immediately recalled to be sacked as they tried a damage limitation exercise. As I said, in retrospect, I think, and O'Connell says in the book, this case, certainly maybe beyond Ireland, is usually seen as a sort of bizarre footnote to Charles Hockey's career. It's become linked with him. He has come to be understood as a, a scandal-ridden figure, was always a very polarising figure. So it contributes to a picture of bizarre behaviour and shenanigans at the top of society, but except in the, in the broadest, broadest sense, I don't think you can actually draw anything from that. It's more just a reflection of Ireland at the time. There really isn't anything to the attempts to turn this into a purely political scandal. The book sounds really interesting, just sort of in conclusion, on the idea of true crime and our fascination with it. And you, you've talked a, a bit about that and your own feelings about it. I mean, we do become, and partly because of the growth of things like podcasts and Netflix series and the whole thing, we are fascinated in a way with it that is so unhealthy. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment or has it ever been thus? I'm kind of thinking about that with your novelist's hat on. Mm. I suspect it's ever been thus. I think the ways we can get these out are maybe more direct. I think if you think of the penny dreadfuls of Victorian sensationalism, the, the sort of dime novels in, in America, the late 19th century and further on, I think as soon as print culture was mainstream, I think the fascination with crime has been there. And I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think for, if you like, a TLS readership, what makes this crime so appalling is the motivation behind it, which I didn't really get to earlier. Malcolm MacArthur had a substantial inheritance, which he spent over 15 years or so, apparently thinking it would last forever, and it didn't. He was an independent scholar. He wasn't attached to any institution. But he could have tried to go into business. He could have got a job. He didn't want to do either of those things. He wanted to preserve his freedom to think and to read. And in order to do that, he said, I'm going to rob the bank. The real question for me, as someone who, in a sense, could sympathise with that urge, with that desire to feel, I want to preserve the space for me to have that intellectual life. But to make the leap to go, well, obviously the thing to do is rob a bank to get the money to do that. That's the real fascination mm. for me in this. What sort of person would do that? And I think for O'Connell, O'Connell in the book admits that he can, in a sense, understand that desire, understand that urge to not be tied down in that way to some kind of paid employment, to some kind of institutional affiliation to preserve your independence. That's a very seductive, very elusive, but very seductive idea for the intellectual set. And I think one of the great fascinations in the book is O'Connell allowing himself to think this guy isn't miles away from me in his background and his view of life prior to his crimes. How did he get himself into this position? And for me, reading it, as I say, as someone who's not a huge fan of true crime as a genre, it's a very uncomfortable read in the best sense, absolutely gripping, absolutely compelling, but quite troubling too in the best way. It just simply doesn't sound like this is going to stop exercising a fascination over people, does it? 
No, I'm sure it's not. And I think, you know, the publication of this book will land much very differently in Ireland than it does here. I think it's already been serialized in one of the main papers. There'll be a lot mm. of discussion about it. It's more of a curiosity in the UK and in England. And as I say, it's best known as, as a sort of footnote, if not to Hockey's career, then to John Banville's. Whereas in Ireland, it is still a major talking point and something that people have stories to tell about, even if they've no connection to it. And of course, I, we must say, this is partly the discomfort around some people's view of, of true crime is that the only reason this is a story at all is because two completely innocent people were murdered and it will be a very difficult moment i'm sure for their families and their loved ones mark o'connell makes the point in the book that he tried to contact them and tried to uh, you know offer to include their perspectives but ultimately i think probably to his credit felt that was a little bit dishonest that was in some sense trying to mitigate something that that isn't what the book was about. The book, as he honestly admits, is about his fascination with evil and what might drive this man to behave in this way. That's what true crime always is. I don't think that's a bad impulse to try to uncover the source of that, to try to look for the original sin there. I just have an awful feeling that's a, a futile pursuit. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it. It may be a futile pursuit, but it, it you know, as you say, it just sounds like an absolutely gripping read. And thank you, Michael, for coming to talk to us about it today. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. have time for this week our thanks go to mary beard and michael hughes and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.